This is a Courageous Church podcast, equipping and empowering you to live a courageous life. Join us now as we listen to a message from Courageous Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Today I want to continue our discussion of the parousia, uh, the coming kingdom or the second coming of Jesus Christ. I would encourage you to listen to part one of, of this presentation because I go into some detail and you'll gain context. Uh, and today I'll just touch on some of those areas. Now in John chapter 14, Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. For a human being to place themselves in a category with God is blasphemous. But Jesus Christ is the God-man. In fact, in John chapter 1, John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that is made. And in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness did not comprehend it. It goes on to say that the Word put on flesh. He, he, he actually went through the process, we call it the incarnation. He, he took a body, and he put on flesh, and he dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Now, Jesus goes on in John 14 to say, My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back. And I'll take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. But Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Thomas says, we're really not sure where you're going. And Jesus said, it really isn't so important where I'm going, but that you know that I am the way, the only way. Now, we're going to review briefly the Olivet Discourse from Matthew chapter 24, and then Daniel's 70th week from Daniel chapter 9. We realize that Jesus is coming again. This is predicted, certainly by Daniel, and it's reiterated for us by Jesus himself in the Olivet Discourse and by the Apostle Paul, particularly in 2 Thessalonians. He's coming to intervene in the affairs of men and to establish his thousand-year reign of, of God in the earth, the reign of Christ. Now remember, there is a relationship between the kingdom, the kingdom that is now and also is not yet. The kingdom is established now. Jesus has triumphed openly over principalities and powers. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again ultimately to establish his kingdom at his second coming in the fullest sense. So this, this Greek word parousia, which literally means presence or coming or arrival, ha had two parts. The first coming where Jesus was the suffering servant. We, we noticed him as a lamb, and he was for, for the most part, unrecognized because those who looked for Messiah were looking for a conqueror, a king. At his second coming, he will be a conquering king. 
He will be coming to judge and to reign. And as we look at Revelation 19, we see when he comes, he comes with all the angels of heaven and he comes with thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000, Jude says, of his saints. So we who believe in him, we will come with him as well. Now, Matthew 24 is Matthew's record of the Olivet Discourse. It's a, it's a briefing from Jesus Christ regarding the last of the last days. In verse 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? It was four disciples that came to him according to Mark 13. It was Peter and Andrew, James and John. Privately they asked, and now he answers by giving them preliminary signs of the times. And I call these trends or indicators. Ten signs that are already fulfilled or are being fulfilled in our lifetimes. Let me just give them to you quickly. Number one is counterfeit Christ leading many astray. Number two is wars and rumors of wars. Number three is famine. Number four, earthquakes in various places. Number five... Uh, this is in injected by Luke the physician in chapter 21, verse 11 of his gospel, pestilences. But Jesus then summarizes in Luke 21, 9 and says, But don't be troubled. These things must take place, but the end isn't yet. Then he goes on. He says, number six, persecution of followers, both Jews and Christians being persecuted. Number seven, a falling away or an apostasy. Uh, including betrayal and hatred. And then number eight, religious deception. There were false Christs, now he says false prophets. Number nine, rampant sin and the diminishment of love. And then finally, number 10, the gospel proclaimed to all nations, Jesus says, then the end will come. Now, I, this is important. 25% of the world's population are in what we call frontier people groups, where they have almost no chance of hearing the gospel, the message of Christ, from someone they know, and there are no known gospel movements. Half of all frontier people groups, uh, making up a, a number of 975 million people, are in 31 predominant people groups in India, the Middle East, and China. And there are two religious groups that account for all of these people, Hinduism and Islam, Hindus and Muslims. 31 different people groups in 12 nations speaking 15 different languages. I know many believers are under the impression that the whole world is heard via radio and satellite and, and, and the proclamation by missionaries. But we have among us today nearly a billion people who have not heard the name of Jesus. And so this is an unfinished task that will continue until the coming of Christ, but it is not the sign of the end. So what is the sign of his coming and of the end of the age? Well, the answer, according to Jesus, is, is, is in Matthew 24, verse 15. He says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. So Jesus quotes from the Old Testament prophet Daniel, and says that this 
particular event, the abomination of desolation, will be the sign. This Old Testament prophesy, uh, prophecy outlines several things. Number one, the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Number two, the first coming of the Messiah and also predicts his death. Number three, the destruction of Jerusalem. And then number four, the coming of an Antichrist and a great tribulation. It is called the abomination of desolation or the abomination that causes desolation. Now, here's a few facts. Jews have a sin consciousness. Remember, Jews were given the law through Moses, and they understand that they have broken the law. They also understand that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. And so the Jews with this sin consciousness long for the days of their temple where sacrifice could be offered to atone for uh, sin, to put off the ultimate uh, judgment and, and, and penalty for a future time when their Messiah would come to take care of the sin issue once and for all. Thus, the temple will be rebuilt in the future and Animal sacrifice, can you imagine it, will be reinstituted. Also, the man of sin, the Antichrist, will enact a treaty or a covenant with many nations and Israel. And the Antichrist will desecrate the Jewish temple and stop the reinstituted animal sacrifice. He will break the treaty, the agreement that he has with these nations. This abomination, this act by the Antichrist will mark the midpoint of Daniel's 70th week. We'll get into that in, in clear uh, detail momentarily. So the abomination is the beginning of the end. Matthew 24, 21, Jesus says, then there will be great tribulation such as has not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever will be. Now, there are those that tell us that this abomination has already taken place, that this prophecy has already been filled, so, uh, fulfilled. Some say prior to Christ's coming, others say uh, just after Christ's ascension. But the reality is, Jesus points out that this will be the, the, the worst tribulation ever seen. There is nothing to compare to it. And he says later that unless these times were shortened, no flesh would survive. So we'll talk more about that in a moment. Now understand this, that Daniel has been held hostage in Babylon for decades where he learned by studying Jeremiah's prophecies that the captivity of God's people, Israel, would be limited to 70 years. Remember, they're taken captive from Jerusalem and Judea, and they're brought uh, in chains to Babylon to serve. But Daniel, reading this prophecy, begins to pray. He begins to intercede in confessing on behalf not only of the entire nation, but even himself. And he begged for God's mercy. As he did so, the angel Gabriel actually appears to him, the same angel that announces to Mary that she will be the mother of the Christ. As, 
uh, Gabriel gives this message known as the 70 weeks prophecy, we find that it maps out a series of events that began in Daniel's lifetime and that culminate in the last days at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, there are several interpretive keys that are important that Bible scholars have embraced for centuries. First of all, a week. A week we are familiar with, a week would refer to seven days, or it could refer to a period of seven years. But the Hebrew word for week is seven. So there are 70 sevens or 70 weeks determined upon Daniel's people, according to Gabriel. And so whether we're talking about days or years, the context and then history itself will confirm that it is weeks of years that was intended. The second thing to keep in mind as we look at this prophecy is that a biblical year refers to a year with 360 days, uh, 12 months of 30 days. In Revelation 11:3 and 12:6, John counts a three and one half year period as 1,260 days or as 42 months. Those would be months with 30 days, thus a 360 day year. This is very important. And then finally, we'll realize there is a decree issued that uh, Jerusalem should be rebuilt. That decree is a historic secular event. That decree was given March 14th, 445 BC. Now I want you to go with me to Daniel chapter 9. And in just four verses, let's uh, allow this, this prophecy of Daniel 70 weeks to unfold for us. Verse 24, a period of 70 sets of seven has been decreed for your people and your holy city. Now listen and understand, seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven will pass from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until a ruler, the anointed one, comes. Jerusalem will be rebuilt with streets and strong defenses despite the perilous times. After this period of 62 sets of seven, the anointed one will be killed, appearing to have accomplished nothing. And a ruler will arise whose armies will destroy the city and the temple. The ruler will make a treaty with the people for a period of one set of seven. But after half this time, he will put an end to the sacrifices and offerings. And as a climax to all of his terrible deeds, he will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration until the fate decreed for this defiler is finally poured out on him. So, according to Gabriel, recorded by Daniel, 77s or seven-year periods are decreed for your people, Daniel, and for your holy city. So this is a prophecy uh, that focuses in on Daniel's people and Daniel's city, the Jews and Jerusalem. Seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven, or a total of 69 sets of seven years which totals 483 years. Seven times seven is 49 years. 
62 times 7 is 434 years. Added together, we're talking 483 years. From when? From the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem. Now, there was a command, a, a, a specific decree that came from Artaxerxes Longimanus. The decree was uh, specific to the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. You see, there were four decrees noted in the Old Testament, in the book of Nehemiah and in the book of Ezra. They regarded the Jews' return from Babylonian captivity to Jerusalem and to rebuild the city and to rebuild the temple. In fact, three specific de decrees uh, spoke about the rebuilding of the temple. Only one spoke about the rebuilding of Jerusalem as a city, and that's found in Nehemiah chapter 2. I'll just highlight it. In verse 1, it says, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought before him, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? I said, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. That decree given by Artaxerxes was given on March 14th, 445 BC. Now, an applicable question would be, how do we determine that date? Artaxerxes was a Medo-Persian king, and Nehemiah was his cupbearer. That means he was his taster and his server. It's in the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign in the month of Nisan. That is March-April, or springtime on our calendars. Artaxerxes, according to secular historians, ascended the throne in July of 465 B.C., the 20th year of his reign, and when someone ascends to the throne, we count the year they ascend as the first year of their reign. We don't wait until they've completed a year. In the 20th year of his reign, it was 446 B.C. It would have been July or August. Nine months later, the first day of Nisan was, would be March 14th, 445 B.C., which was the first day uh, of Nisan on a Jewish calendar. Now, before we do the math and calculate from that date forward, I think it's important to establish something else first. In Luke chapter 3, we have an interesting phrase. It says, now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, John the Baptist was baptizing, and Jesus came to him to be baptized. Bible scholars agree that it was in the fall of the year that Jesus was baptized. Now, Tiberius Caesar's coronation, according to secular historians, again, was August 19th, A.D. 14. 
Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist in the fall of A.D. 28, based upon the statement of Luke. It was the 15th year of his reign. Now, Jesus' ministry spanned four Passovers. His first Passover was in the spring of A.D. 29. His fourth Passover took place on April 10th, A.D. 32, the day of his crucifixion. If you were to go back several days to the Sunday before April 10th, A.D. 32, you would come to April 6th of A.D. 32, and traditionally we call that day Palm Sunday. The day of the triumphal, triumphant, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem by Jesus Christ, not on a war horse, but on a, a, a donkey. Now, if you count forward the number of days made up by these years, the 434 years times 300, I'm sorry, the 434 plus the 49, totaling 483 years. If you multiply that times 360 days, the number of days in a biblical year, you, you have a total of 173,880 days. Now, when we do that, we count forward from March 14, 445 BC, we will arrive at April 6th, AD 32. Once again, Palm Sunday. It's a unique day because up till now, there have been a number of occasions when the disciples ask Jesus if he's going to restore the kingdom. And he tells them not to talk about that, not to talk about him as a king. But on this particular day, as he enters into Jerusalem, as the crowds begin to cheer him and to worship him and to lay down palm branches, uh, of course, riding on the, uh, on, on the donkey is significant. Uh, that A great king would ride in on a donkey as a sign of peace. And Jesus obviously was the, the prince of peace. Not only did this take place on this particular day, April 6, AD 32, but the dates also are confirmed through astronomical calculations at the British Royal Observatory. And this was reported back in 1894. In fact, in, in the description of this video, we'll put a link to a book by Sir Robert Anderson. It was published in London in 1894. It's called The Coming Prince. I would encourage you to get a copy of that and you can study all the details uh, of this prophecy. Now, what we learned is that it was from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until a ruler, the anointed one, comes. A specific time frame from the decree to the coming of the anointed one, or the Hebrew, the Messiah. The Messiah would come on April 6, 32 AD. And of course, the first time again that Jesus accepted the title king was on Palm Sunday. And then it says, the anointed one will be killed. Uh, some versions say, but not for himself. Of course, it was for you and for me, for the whole world. God loved the whole world that he gave his son, that whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish, but would have everlasting life. Uh, uh, the new uh, living translation says uh, he will be killed and seemingly accomplish nothing. But uh, uh, nonetheless, he accomplished so much more than people recognize when they realize 
who he is. And then it says a ruler will arise and his people will destroy the city and the temple. Well, we know that a ruler ultimately will come out of the revised Roman Empire. And we know that in AD 70, the city and the temple were destroyed by the Romans. And so we understand that there will ultimately be a second part, not only the coming of the Messiah, but the destruction of Jerusalem as we know it in 70 AD. And then it tells us, then the ruler will make a treaty. Then, there's a break, a time break. Then the ruler will make a treaty, a covenant with people for one seven, for one seven year period the seven years of tribulation. I'm sure you've, you've thought of it before. But after half of that seven, or three and a half years, one half of seven, three and a half, he will end it. He will end the covenant. He will end the treaty. The time frame is very specific. In Revelation chapter 11, in verses 2 and 3, it tells us that that three and a half year period is 42 months long. It's 1,260 days. Again, taking a biblical year of 360 days, it's exactly three and a half years. And we're told that the Antichrist, this man of sin, will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration. Now, we want to, we want to get perspective from the Apostle Paul, who also comments on this abomination of desolation two decades before the Gospels are penned or circulated. He does so in 51 or 52 AD as he writes his second letter to the church at Thessalonica. This is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Verse 7, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. That's the second coming of Christ. Now, there are other possible explanations that have been forwarded through the centuries regarding this prophecy by Daniel and then by Christ and then the commentary by the Apostle Paul. In fact, in 168 BC, the Greek king Antiochus IV uh, Epiphanes of Syria invaded Jerusalem, raided the temple, stole its treasures, and set up an altar to Zeus and then sacrificed swine on the altar. The Jewish response was strong. They took up arms to fight. In, in 167-166 BC, Judas Maccabeus led the Jews in a series of victories over the military forces of the Syrian Greeks. And after vanquishing Antiochus and the Seleucids, the Jews cleansed and restored the, the second temple in 165 BC. This eight-day celebration or festival is known as the Festival of Lights or Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication.
Now, certainly Antiochus Epiphanes is a tyrannical figure in Jewish history and a foreshadowing of the coming Antichrist. But the prophet Daniel predicts an atrocity in the temple in the end times. In fact, he gives us a timeline starting with the coming of the Messiah, the death of the Messiah, uh, then the destruction uh, of Jerusalem, and then ultimately there would be this, this ruler, this one that would come. So it's hardly within the keeping of Daniel's timeline. Um, this abomination that will make desolation predicted by Daniel certainly seems to be depicted or typified by Antiochus, but Jesus speaks of Daniel's prophecy as having a, stu a still future fulfillment. For Jesus is speaking to us in AD 32, hundreds of years after Antiochus goes into the temple in Jerusalem. The Antichrist will model Antiochus Epiphanes in his great pride and his blasphemous actions and his hatred for the Jews. But he is a separate figure, a future figure. And so again, Jesus is predicting the desecration as a future event in the Olivet Discourse. Antiochus may have been a type of Antichrist, but he's not the one referred to by Jesus. Further, Paul says it's with the, the breath of Christ's mouth at his second coming that this Antichrist will be destroyed. Jesus Christ didn't even put on flesh until the first century. He, he, was, he was not in a position to come against Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, as some might suggest. Also, AD 70 is cited as a possible fulfillment of the abomination of desolation. We know that in that year, the Roman general Titus invaded Jerusalem to crush a Jewish revolt. He entered the temple and he had the building destroyed. It was destroyed with fire. And he carried off the lampstand and some of other uh, temple artifacts to Rome where he showed them off in the streets. However, there is no evidence that he set up his image or he required worship as a god or that he was defeated by the parousia, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, who Paul says will kill the man of sin, the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, with the breath of his mouth and bring him to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So if we sort of take, take a, a summary of what we see here, the first seven weeks are for the rebuilding of Jerusalem, which was completed in 396 BC. The next 62 weeks are in anticipation of Messiah the Prince. Jesus, who did arrive April 6th, A.D. 32, uh, depicted in the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Then the Messiah shall be cut off, according to Daniel 9.26. And we know that five days later, after the triumphal entry, he was crucified on Passover. So rejection of the Messiah by Israel. They didn't acknowledge him as, as Lord. They, they didn't embrace him. Uh, they rejected him. Uh, and the destruction of the city and the temple in AD 70 marks the beginning of a gap in this prophecy. The prophecy seems to move along pretty smoothly till the rejection of Christ, his crucifixion, and then not many years later, 
in 70 AD, the destruction of Jerusalem, the burning of the temple. And so what we're looking at here is that a future date where once again God will deal with Israel as a nation. See, this is a prophecy for your people, Daniel, and your holy city. And God was dealing with Israel during this this time during the first 69 weeks, one week remains, and God will deal again with Israel in that 70th week. In the meantime, we experience grace. We experience the church age, which is why, according to Peter, Jesus' second coming has been delayed, 2 Peter chapter 3. So, uh, the final week, one week left to go, one seven-year period, it says, He shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, for seven years. But in the middle of the week, or at the three and one half year point, He will bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and He will desecrate the temple. He is the man of sin, the beast, the Antichrist. This marks the beginning of the Great Tribulation. Now, what's the purpose of all this? Well, that's made clear for us in Daniel 9, 24. There are six purposes relative to Israel that are outlined by Gabriel, and Daniel writes them down. Number one, to finish the transgression. Number two, to make an end of sin. Number three, to make reconciliation for iniquity. Number four, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Number five, to seal up or to finish the vision and prophecy. And number six, to anoint the most holy. Now, for a Christian, we might easily conclude that the anointing of the most holy, holy is the anointing of Christ. But throughout the Old Testament, the reference to the most holy is the holy place. It's referring to the temple, anointing, rededicating, consecrating the temple. And we know that after it is desecrated during the seven years of tribulation at the midway point, when Jesus comes back, the temple will be purified and Jesus will establish his kingdom in the earth. Now, a question I'm often asked is, is there a prophetic time clock? And if so, where are we in relation to prophetic fulfillment? In, in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, remember the followers of Christ gathered around him before he ascended into heaven, and they said, Lord, at this time are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said this, It's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, seemingly indicating that the Father has within the framework of the economy of heaven uh, a timetable relative to these events described in Daniel 9 on the Olivet Discourse and by Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Evidently, Daniel chapter 9 would argue for a specific time frame for fulfillment of prophetic and end time events as we see those periods of years carried out. Now consider quickly with me something very interesting. Consider the first coming of Christ predicted by Daniel. Consider the AD 70 destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the scattering of the Jews to the ends of the earth. And then consider, in 1948, 
the proclamation of the establishment of the state of Israel by David Ben-Gurion. Harry Truman, the U.S. president, recognized the new nation of Israel the very same day. 1967, after a six-day war between Israel and her opponents, Egypt, Syria, and Jordan, results in Israel's miraculous victory, doubling the size of their territory, including East Jerusalem. Then, in 1979, Israel signs a peace treaty with Egypt. And then, in 1994, Israel signs a peace treaty with Jordan. Let me tell you, it's been 26 years since another peace treaty has been signed. But before we get to that, 2018, the United States of America recognizes Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, promised by numerous presidents past. President Trump honored the pledge and moved the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And then in 2020, 26 years after the last peace treaty between Israel and an Arab country, the circle of peace, as it is being called, expands between Israel and Arab nations. Just this last August, the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain both on October, uh, established a peace treaty, a relationship with Israel. Then on October 23rd, just about, what, a week ago, Sudan also joined this circle of peace. These momentous uh, peace treaties uh, certainly indicate that something is going on and favor is reflected toward Israel. Further, the Temple Institute in Jerusalem has operational blueprints for a third temple in Jerusalem. You can go to their website, www.templeinstitute.org, to read further about it. They have already created over 60 sacred temple vessels in preparation for a reconstructed temple, and a reinstitution of animal sacrifice. The high priest's breastplate with the 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel has been created. The priestly garments, all the musical instruments for the Le Levitical choir, all these things are ready. Further, the Temple Institute has opened a training school for Levit Levitical priests to begin training for their eventual service in the new temple. And it is estimated that over 500 priests have already been trained. And one last note, the breeding to produce a red heifer, a very unusual animal whose ashes will be used mixed with water to ritually purify the Temple Mount and that area which has been desecrated. These breeding procedures are already well underway and you, 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 you can see uh, much on this subject if you'll, you'll, you'll simply search for it on the internet. So Jesus says in Matthew 24, 34, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. It is fantastic to contemplate what we are in 
the midst of. As I mentioned earlier, this good news of the kingdom will be preached. If you have interest in further information about unreached frontier people groups, you can go to www.joshuaproject.org where the information is thorough and very helpful. Well, let's wrap this up today. In Revelation chapter 22, Jesus says, look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. In verse 12 of Revelation 22, Jesus says, Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Verse 14 Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Let me tell you how you can wash your robes. It is not the type of cleansing that you might think. It is a being washed by the blood of the lamb, allowing your sin to be dealt with by Jesus' death at the cross, a substitutionary atoning death in your place and in mine. Then, verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. I am the heir to the throne of David, is what Christ is proclaiming here, and we know it to be true. Verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears Come, let those who are thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen, John writes. Come, Lord Jesus. Let me pray for you today. Whether you're Jewish, whether you're non-Jewish, a Gentile, you need Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Messiah, the Prince who has come, who did die, who did ascend, and who is seated at the right hand of the Father, and who will come again. Simply open your heart to Him today. Understand that He wants to wash your robe. He wants to give you access to the tree of life. He wants to give you a new heart and turn your life right side up. Just repeat some simple words like these. Heavenly Father, I believe you sent Jesus for me. And I repent of my sins. I turn from my wicked way, my self-centered lifestyle. And I ask you, Jesus, to take up residence on the throne of my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. As you forgive me of sin, change me from the inside out. I believe that you died and that you rose again. And I believe that you're coming again. Come into my life, change me, and I will endeavor to surrender and to give my life to you, serving you for the rest of the days of my life. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Thank you for listening today. If you were blessed and you want to be a part of what God is doing through Courageous Church, including ways that you can give, visit us online at courageouschurch.com.